0: Check out guardianvets.com now.
1: Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. We will jump right in the show here with Jason Coppins here momentarily. Before we do, quickly take a break, hit our sponsors that help make the show possible.
0: If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now.
1: You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck pet urgent care Center Franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to a hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center Franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting you reach out and learn how you can own your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right. So I'm joined by Jason Coppins of Coppins Business Strategies. Jason is a return guest in his first show, was on episode number 17. So way back in 2019, it's one of the ones that has been highly listened to, downloaded. So I know there's been a lot of good stuff learned from that episode. And I wanted to bring Jason back in, talk through some updates, other different areas maybe we didn't get to last time. With that, Jason, thanks so much for coming back.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me on.
1: Absolutely. So we talked and the title of the last podcast we did together was kind of a blueprint for growth. And a lot of what we chatted through holds true today, right? Most of that is something that's, hey, that's timeless. That's not going to change. But there has been a ton of change within veterinary medicine with the pandemic. And obviously I know people at this point, and I feel this way, tired of talking about all that stuff, but there has been major changes. And I wanted to go through and talk about opportunities for the overburdened owner that is kind of focused on, I want to see meaningful change today, whether that's time savings, because sometimes it's just, I don't need to make more. I'm good. Like financially, I'm making plenty of money. I need time. Like I'm so stretched. Or maybe it is margin expansion. Like I want to be more efficient. And we talked a lot about efficiency last time, but I know it's super open-ended. So there's a lot of different ways we can go, but any thoughts on that? Well, there's a ton
2: of different things going on in the market from what I'm seeing right now. And again, we went through such a huge shift in how practices worked over the last two years, once the pandemic hit and then going to curbside, coming off that. But kind of look at more recently, what's been happening over the last year, is a couple of big factors have kind of been playing out in space. First of all, there is just a huge demand for veterinary business. I mean, everyone's demand is through the roof. Most of the clinics I'm working with are sometimes booked out two or three or four months just to get in with them. And so one of the things that's coming out of that is there's a lot of opportunity there, but there's also a lot of downsides to it. So kind of diving into that from a couple of different angles. First of all, you have a lot more business than you can handle. And trying to be able to fit all that in is good because all of a sudden you have no problems generating revenue there, but it has a lot of negative impacts on the backside. One of the things to really think about right now that I talk with a lot of people about is as you see inflation going up, you're going to see your prices and costs going up. This is probably one of those number one times to really look at raising your prices as well and looking at a pretty decent strategy for doing that. Some of the practices I talk with haven't updated prices in several years. And there's a couple of different ways to do that. We could get into that with more detail. But I think this is definitely a time to look at that pricing strategy you have in place and make sure that is appropriate for the market that we're currently in. Right now, people are waiting sometimes months to get in with you. There's a premium for your services. And now is the time to be able to charge appropriately for them in light of all the other costs that are going up that you're dealing with. And that kind of dovetails into some other things. So now we're all busy. We have a lot of things coming in. We're walking into a fully booked schedule from start to finish throughout the day. And then we have emergencies calling throughout the day. And, again, a lot of opportunity, a lot of people needing help. But we have to kind of deal with that. And we haven't had to deal with it to that degree probably in the past ever. Some of the emergency clinics in the area that I work in more directly are booked out sometimes six or eight hours just to get in with them. And again, this is the overflow from the practices and the front lines too. So there's just a huge need for care, especially the urgent care. And what happens in some practices, they're trying to fit all of these clients in throughout the day. And again, trying to deliver that excellent customer service, help out the patients that really need it, because a lot of them, if they're calling in, they're sick. What well, that does ends up burning out the staff. And all of a sudden, every day is just a huge fire from start to finish. And it's hard on the owners. It's hard on the doctors. It's hard on the receptionists, And everyone involved has to do that day after day. And it's been going on for months at this point. And that contributes to burnout. And I'm seeing a lot of people shifting jobs right now. I'm also seeing a lot of people leaving the field, which is probably the more concerning piece of it. So kind of looking at that, a lot of opportunity to be able to raise prices and help a bunch of people grow our patient base and all that. But now we have this problem. Of it's also burning us out. And it's very hard to do anything else when all you do is take care of patients all day. So a lot of those processes are starting to slip on the back sides of it. Our inventory, other things like that are just not as tight as they should be. And we're not making a lot of steps forward because all we're doing is just seeing the next patient. And then to add on top of that, a huge complication that we're all dealing with right now is a shortage of staffing. heard a statistic the other day that for every veterinarian looking for a job, there's 18 positions open. And that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, support staff is a huge thing. Recruiting is just an immensely big need for any practice. And again, that's recruiting on top of seeing all the appointments we were just talking about, but it's such a core piece. And so we ended up doing a lot of recruiting for different places because they just needed to get a lot of that recruiting done and they didn't have the time to do it. And they were competing against a 100 other practices within the next 20 miles, trying to do the same thing all over a very scarce set of resources. And that's made a really interesting recruiting environment as well. So all these things are kind of happening at once, a lot of business, but also a lot of burnout, a lot of shortage of staff. And again, all that kind of plays together into a really unique environment right now. I feel
1: Absolutely. And I want to go back to one of the things you talked about earlier. Cause we, I've had these conversations as well, but I don't think anyone on the podcast has really chatted through it, which is the kind of the pricing strategy. And I know that sometimes people will struggle with saying, well, yeah, inflation's going up and that's hurting a lot of different people. And I want to make sure that my care is still affordable, but I feel bad raising prices or different things. But if you're booked out, it's tricky. So how would you encourage someone to think about maybe ways to increase prices or evaluate if they're pricing appropriately? Is there
2: any feedback, tips, thoughts? It's important to say up front before I give specific numbers and stuff like that. It's important to say that for any practice, you have to know your clients, you have to know your area, Again, this is not a one size fits all model. And so everything that you look at with pricing, you have to take into account how you do it and who is affecting it and what plays with the clients you're at. I would price very differently myself if I was working at a clinic in the middle of New York City than I would in the middle of rural Alabama. And so looking at that and understanding that your client base and where that makes sense is obviously a big part of it. That being said, here's some of the thoughts I have. There's a couple of different prices that I like to look at and a couple of different ways to look at pricing. First of all, there's going to be the things that are going to have a direct markup on the product side. We're going to do a direct percentage markup. So one of the most important things with that is to make sure that that percentage markup stays in place as your prices change. Most of the practice management softwares will have this in place, but whatever that percentage markup is, if you're doing a 200% markup, which is not uncommon for a lot of things, do that in a way so that when your prices go up to you, your system is capturing those new prices and those new costs, and that ups your cost the clients at the same time. That's the basic thing that should be there. So let's take that out of the realm of just that basic stuff. and Let's talk about some more specific pricing. There's a lot of strategy about what to price and how to price it. Things that are shoppable services. They talk about things like exams and spays and neuters. Those usually you price a little more competitively with the market. You can call people in the area to see where they're at and other things like that. I like to use those costs in some ways just to make sure I am attracting the type of clients that I want. One of the more interesting things, talking from a business sense that's going on right now, is there's such a demand for business, is you can kind of pick your clients for the first time. And so instead of trying to get everyone, you can start pricing towards people that you want to kind of have come in. So one of the things we did in the practice I was running for a while is we adjusted our prices. Our emergency price was a $100 plus just to come in the same day. If you were filling a slot same day with us, it was triple digits to walk in the door. Anyone who's not doing that at this point, I would highly encourage you to get to that point pretty quickly because a lot of the emergencies fees I see are like 75 bucks. You can get to 100, 120 easily without anyone even balking at it. And that's the value you're creating because that money is not just there to make more money. That's to exchange for the burnout to your staff. And a lot of these prices that we're raising as well, not only is there to help the business move forward, but and offset some of the costs, but we're also raising wages to be able to accommodate the staff we have because we're all competing for staff. So like LVT wages are going up, other things are going up. So this money is not just going into your pockets. It's going to other parts of the hospital that need it. So looking at those types of things, we'll start with that. The shop services, I I usually try to do kind of competitively, but then again, tailored towards the audience that's in my area and that I want to take out of my area. Beyond that, when you get into the things that are not as shopped, that's where a lot of the increases need to be. If I look at the product side for a minute, and then we'll do the services second, but if I look at the product side, there's different philosophies about using a minimum cost versus using a dispensing fee or a combination of the two of them. I'm not a big fan of minimum costs. I like dispensing fees, and those usually range around the 10 ish dollar range, and that goes on top of anything that we're filling. If we're touching it in order to put it into a bottle, that dispensing fee goes on top. Now, I'm going to introduce a concept that is a little more unique to the veteran, that is a little bit more unusual for the veterinary industry, but I've seen in other places. And that's a concept called will to pay. And so there are some prescriptions that I mark up 130%. Most of my markups are around 200%, but there's some that I mark up a couple thousand percent. And the difference between some of those is sometimes I get prices for pills at a penny a pill, but those I know that our clients expect to pay for when I put them together for a basic bottle of medicine. And normal prices we're somewhere in that 20 to 30 dollar range for a couple of pills for normal things so if i'm pricing out and my pill structure comes to the point where it's eight dollars for 30 pills i've marked that up more aggressively i like to hit around that 20 dollar mark minimum for what would be a standard issue for what i'm going to send out the door because of concerns paying for that and it's pretty fair for taking care of a pet if you want to talk about aggressive pricing strategies you can look at things that you need to sell day of And again, this is more of a philosophical thing. You can decide if you like this or if this is a little bit off for you, but things that you need to send home that day, pain medication, stuff like that can have higher markups just plainly because they're needed. You're going to dispense them that day. They're not going to spend time shopping them online at Chewy. They're going to be going home with them. Those you are more comfortable on the margins there, and those can be marked up more aggressively. I have priced out things above Chewy, sometimes twice as high as Chewy, and had no problem selling them consistently. And that's because... They were the types of products I knew that people were needing to go home with today. It wasn't going to be something that was going to be shopped and we could go right after it. Again, all this stuff allows me to, without a hesitation, hire more staff, give more raises. And that's the type of stuff I want to be able to do. If I don't have some of this extra cash on hand, I can't do those things. I can't expand buildings. I can't do any of the stuff I need to do to actually help the clients going forward. But those are the things that people have a huge return to help reduce and other things for pets. And at the same point in time, are the ones that they're gonna be taking home right there. I can give it to them. I have those stocked ready to go and priced appropriately. So those are things to consider. If you scale up any of the pricing, make sure that a standard bottle, a five pill bottle, and a 60 pill bottle all come in at appropriate ranges. So I usually check the pricing on all three of them to make sure that all of them seem reasonable. And again, that goes back to will to pay. I don't want anything that scales up so aggressively that all of a sudden we're at 60 pills and it's $300. Those, I will drop those margins back. So I like a lot of intentionality with that. But it all comes down to what's appropriate and what I think is what a client would deem appropriate for that price as well, for the service they're getting and the job it does, not necessarily the cost of the product behind it. Going over to the services side, obviously things like labs, you're going to mark up around two times, two and a half times. There's other things that are kind of best practices with that. There are room to move those margins around a little bit. If you are really promoting small services, like the benefit of getting in-house labs and results the same day, there can be a premium put on that there's other things you can do to kind of adjust those prices. So I do also compare my inside lab versus my reference labs or outside labs and price them based on some of the messaging that I'll have with that. Finally, as far as uplifts go, once I have a good pricing structure in place and there's other products like Profit Solver and other things that can give you some ideas if you just want to see where those things should be at. But once you get those in and priced, I would also make sure that you're doing uplifts on a regular basis. Usually I look for somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% a year. And usually that comes into about a one and a quarter percent uplift on all services every quarter. You can do that on a less frequent basis, or whatever else like that. Again, your clients will tell you if there's anything that's priced incorrectly. You'll get pushback on things. People will complain about it. Your receptionist will know up front if there's any problems with any of the pricing. And again, not one or two, but if you get 10, 15 people remarking about the price, then you can adjust things back down or re- kind of home those into where they need to be and kind of tweak them a little bit. But for the most part, for every practice I'm working with and we're talking about pricing, they're not getting pushback on anything they do. We up the price and again and again to kind of keep up with what we need to do in order to get benefits and other stuff like that. And we're not getting pushback from clients on anything we're doing. Interesting. There is a bunch of information on pricing.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome. And again, this is why the first episode was highly sought after, I believe, and there's a lot of good content is because there's actionable, deep detail with that. One thing I wanted to ask, On a service. So, like when you think about surgeries, so this is recent. I had a friend that was like my best friend growing up, and he messaged me on LinkedIn, and he's actually an advisor as well. And he's like, You work with veterinarians. I need to ask you questions. We need an ACL surgery. And he's like, I've called five different places, and he goes, Four of them, they're all really close between 4,500 and 4,900. And there's one that's 3,600. He goes, Why would one be so different? How do you think about instructing someone on something like that? That is this bigger surgery how do you think about pricing there i mean are you calling around are you trying to get that information how does someone set those prices
2: that's really interesting because that actually dovetails into a lot of things with a lot of those non choppable services you know ultrasounds different things you have kind of sitting in the back of your hospital surgeries are a great one but a lot of those things back there those are not things that people are going to call around and ask for prices on i'm going to give you my golden rule with that and then we can talk about all the other stuff number one thing is i look at for everything that we recommend in their practice, I want to know what our ratio is of compliance. With our compliance ratio, I want to know the percentage of people that are saying no due to price. Usually that gives me an idea. I always want to have a couple of people saying no. I don't want everyone saying yes because I'm probably underpriced. I don't want half of them saying no because of the price. And again, if they don't think it's important, that's different. But if it's a price thing, I want us to get it probably that 80 to 90% are complying with it and not concerned about the price piece of it. There is a benefit they always look for that. And if we're going to like push dentistry or surgery or something like that, we're going to push it consistently and do that. And that usually gives me a sense. If Everyone's saying yes across the board, I can raise prices. If everyone's saying no, or that's really expensive, and every conversation is just like dragging people through the weeds in order to be able to justify it, we're probably a little high for the market in our area. And so there's a golden rule for a very specific clinic, wherever you're at, that can apply still. And so look at those things. Across the board, other golden rules, I'll tell you, Every veterinarian underprices their services, period. I don't think I've seen exceptions to that yet, especially when you get into that back office stuff that they don't know because none of the veterinarians talk about. It. They don't know what each other charges. They don't know where it's at. And so it's very possible you can have someone charging 200 and someone charging 800 for the same exact service. The more time you put into this, the more you can kind of refine that and get better at it. There are things, as you talk about, if you want to get really into some the nuts and bolts pricing. And get some specific recommendations there's those products like profit solver and stuff like that that will actually go through and break out a lot of those things and you can look at from a couple different perspectives like what is the cost going into it what's the time and the labor and all the cost of goods that make that up and then how do i offset that that's part of it when you get into those surgeries and stuff like that that's where a lot of the money's at though too and there's not a lot of cost besides time and a lot of that and so those are the ones where I, I don't usually look at a direct markup on cost of doing it I look at that will-to-pay concept or what's appropriate for the market, what people are willing to do. Because I want to give the care I want to give, and I want people to be able to say yes, but I want that to be at a price that they think is fair and also works out for me on my side. So that's how I usually approach it. If you want to get into the product side, you can contact some groups like that to get a lot of specific recommendations. But again, difference between New York City and rural Alabama are probably a decent amount. And so I'd Mm -hmm. like to look at, I really want to understand the market. And when people start pushing back, they usually give me the knowledge I need to say, I think I'm hitting the top end
1: here. Yep. You touched on just demand growth and urgent care has come up a lot of different times in this podcast. VetCheck is a sponsored podcast, rolling out a franchise version of urgent care that can be a bolt on. So there's demand and profit margins are really strong. How have you evaluated that or had conversations with folks around this kind of urgent care sit between the GP and the emergency room and just what that looks like?
2: i far, I'm going to make sure I understand you correctly with that. So as far as how to handle it on the GP level or?
1: Just rolling it out or trying to say, I see this issue in the marketplace. Urgent care could help solve that. Do I create a second business? Do I bolt it onto our existing business? Just having the conversation of what urgent care and how it could fit. And I don't know if you have a lot of those conversations or not, but I know it's in demand and it's profitable. And it's one that people have been bringing up quite a bit.
2: Yeah. I was on a phone call on Tuesday with a gentleman who's actually building a separate urgent care facility just for that thing. Again, we're running into that problem where the GPs are full and the emergencies are full and they're waiting six, eight hours just to get in there. So there is a huge demand in that center section. However, you can work it out. On the GP side, if you have the ability to add on a doctor specifically for urgent care or some of those services in that area, excellent. Or bolt on some stuff like you were talking about, Isaiah. If you can't do any of those things, looking at one of the The more basic things you can do is obviously reserve some slots throughout the day for that emergency care. Sometimes one or two, a doctor is just reserved for that emergency slot call-in type of stuff. I also make sure that looking at your room flow in general, you should be able to run on time if you fill your schedule. So if I'm working with a clinic and I start to see they're booking half an hour appointments and two hours into the day, they're 30 minutes behind, they run behind, there's a snowball all day till the end, that's not probably that model you want. Because that means anything you work in on top of that is just going to continue to compound that it leads to bad service, which leads to a lot of other problems. So when you're looking at trying to get some of this urgent care in there, make sure you understand its impact on the rest of your business and appropriately staffed for that and appropriately scheduled for that. Because realistically, you're going to fall a little bit behind as emergencies come in and stuff like that throughout the day, but you should be able to catch back up as well. A standard wellness appointment, if you have a book for 30 minutes, you should be knocking out in 20. That way, when that sick one comes in, you can do it in 40 and still be on pace at the end of it. So I really like to make sure that I understand that because some of our doctors are really fast. And then we can not only fill all the schedules and all the emergency slots, we can book others in on top of it. And so we have a rule with our receptionist that they have to go in with the doctor, but they can bring any case they want to the doctor and ask them if they can work it in. The doctor can say yes or no. We kind of fit those in based on what's happening throughout the day and make kind of an audible call at the moment of, Can we get this in? What is it? Will it fit or are we behind or what are our options there? And that's if I don't have anything else to bolt on or support me around the edges to do some of that urgent care stuff. And I also have a good link of who in the area does walk-ins. And we will sometimes at least refer over there because people who don't do walk-ins like a traditional clinic usually just says at 11 a.m. we've closed off our books for the day. Emergencies are option. But for people who don't have a lot of money, one of the options we give is there's a walk-in clinic or two in my area, I know their numbers. We refer over there for a one-off, and I know that they're not going to try to steal clients or anything like that, but they'll be able to help them out, but not at an emergency cost sometimes if people are willing to wait. But I like a lot of the bolting concepts, too. The more you can provide those services yourself, absolutely the better way to do it if you can. What
1: do you think about, and I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name, and I want to get him on the podcast, I'm spacing on it, but he's a professor and he's lectured within VB chapters, but he's out of the University of Georgia, but talking about scheduling and kind of like this parallel schedule of working two rooms versus just one Like, Do you help people think about how best to structure and schedule their days from that standpoint? And do you want to expand upon that? Because me trying to ask the question, I feel like it's not clear because I've never done it and lived that life. And I heard it and I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Because it reminds me more of like the dental model of being able to hop around versus having like one spot where you're staying.
2: Yeah. So, room flow or just how your appointments flow door to door is one of the big things I worked with clinics on before the pandemic hit. Obviously, we moved on to pricing and recruiting are some of the big things now. But looking at that initially, that was huge because looking through that, one doctor could be drastically different than the next. And I've seen places where the support staff is one assistant to a doctor, and I've seen other ones where it's six assistants to a doctor. And I've seen people fall behind and not. So generally speaking, putting all that together for a minute, one of the things I'm going to look for upfront is what is that area that's really taking the longest amount of time? Is it the doctor or is it the assistant? Because as I do, I will come in and I will actually watch clinics all the way through their day, through the appointments. I'll watch them. We'll time every section of it for every doctor and see where, where we're slowing down because the models you're talking about, which is what we're used to on the human side too, is you are going to have enough assistants running around that they're doing all this work and the doctor pops in for five minutes and leaves. And they can see volume wise, they're no longer the limiting factor. It's the support staff. And so I was at a clinic a while back that The gentleman had six support staff for him. He was running six rooms simultaneously, clients in all of them. And then As the assistants were done getting the the histories and everything else like that, they'd walk out and stand outside the door. He'd walk in, walk out. He'd be done in there in three to four minutes at a time and be out of the next room. And he was doing six an hour without a problem at all. Ran on time. Really interesting to watch. That's not the model for everyone. But knowing where that limiting factor is is very important. Is it support staff, which is very popular right now just because we're short on support staff. We don't have all the people we need, and so we're doing it with less staff there. And as we look at that and figure out what that limitation is, then we can start diving into what to do about it. One of the first things I'd say to look for is how much can you take out of the appointment? So what can we get ahead of time? There's people we don't get records for, for clients until we get there. There's times where we don't have histories until we get there. There's all the stuff we're trying to assemble in the actual appointment. And the more that we can get that stuff ahead of time, the better. There are some clinics that we do online forms where people fill out full history before they get there. We find those very valuable and we can just walk in the room and get going faster. Sometimes, as far as the flow goes, it's more efficient to pull the doctor and the assistant in together and have them start the appointment together so you don't have the downtime from switching in and out of the room. There's a lot of efficiency loss from leaving the room and coming back in. I see that with everything else, from having assistants come in and go out, having doctors come in and go out. If the doctor has to come back in for any reason, re explain things, or do more stuff, that just starts compounding time. The ideal version of this is very straightforward and it's run consistently across all doctors. And that's another key area I see, which is every doctor does it differently, so the staff learn five different ways to do it. And none are efficient because they're not the our clinic way of doing it. They're whatever that doctor wants to do. And there has to be a framework in place. There can be some freedom, you know, they get to practice their own medicine, but the framework of how an appointment runs, when do people go in, what order, what are they getting, how do they communicate that information or transmit that information between each other. All that stuff is very, very important to have a framework in place because that's the only way you can improve things is if you have a system that's in place that you can actually tweak things on. If everyone does it different, you can't do that. So looking at the in and out times like I was going back to, that's a huge loss. I see not having enough information up front, getting as much as I can up front, I will do. As much as I can not have people moving around, if I can do checkout in the room, for a booking in the room, if I can get all that done quickly, I'll do it. If I'm having an assistant that goes in and gets a full history for like seven minutes and goes out and repeats to the doctor, and the doctor comes in and rehashes the whole thing with them, that's hugely inefficient. If we're looking at the things where we're doing any redundancies, where it's the same thing said three or four times, where we're having downtime, like we're going out of the room and talking and coming back in the room, those are some of the killers because it's just these gaps that we're just not using productively for any reason. So I like the histories up front to be tight with the assistants. I like that time to be as fast as possible. We're going to get in and we're going to get out. From there, as soon as that doctor is ready, they're in the room. They're going to do the doctor stuff that the doctor needs to do. Anything I can do to make the doctor as efficient in that room as possible, from having people typing for them to getting notes or travel sheets so they can quickly mark up so they can hand those around and give their instructions to other people, those are all things that move them quickly and stops them from having to stop and have a full conversation. We have highlighters and travel sheets in the hospital I was running. Everything that marked quickly from the doctor, there was no discrepancy, there was no loss of communication. We had a sheet that told us exactly what we're doing for every patient, start to finish. And that sheet started with the client in the beginning with the receptionist and ended back with the receptionist who verified the bill. And so through that whole thing, doctors in, they do their stuff, hops out, and they're on to the next thing that they need to do. If I have the support staff to, to do that, there's another technician or float in the back that's waiting there to help draw bloods, in catheters, whatever else we need to do until the doctor's needed again. But we're moving that doctor quickly through appointments with enough gap that when we have to pull a doctor in for x-rays or something more high end, we still have that in the schedule and we can work that in without falling catastrophically behind. You have to anticipate that you're gonna have the things that the doctor's gonna to need to stop and go help with. Now, ideally, you're gonna to wanna to leverage your staff to an aggressive enough degree that the doctor's only doing things the doctor has to do. we are not doing blood draws, we are not doing other things. And again, this could differ hospital to hospital, but for the most part, if you want the efficiency piece, you want doctors doing only things doctors can do, technicians doing only things technicians can do, and assistants doing only things that can't be done or that they can do that the other two are not having to do. That gets that efficiency down so that people can really focus on their expertise and do those things. And then we can hire less skilled, less trained people to do all the other front end stuff that's easy to train, doesn't require degrees or anything else like that, and help us to be efficient there with the higher end, higher paid employees doing very narrow stuff. I think that's kind of an important piece of it too.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for that. The thought process on inventory and kind of the processes and things just getting loose because everyone's running around like a wild tornado. (laughs) Talk to me a little bit about that. And I feel like what I'm going to hear feedback is, well, I just don't have time. I just don't have time. I just don't have time. How do you try to square that and say, okay, you have to have time for this because again, going back to you're running around, you're chasing everything. Like you can't let these things slip because it is I mean, inventory and processes, I mean, there's a lot of dollars and cents that are just going to find a way outside of the hospital that are never going to be recaptured.
2: That's a great one because that comes up all the time too. (laughs) So let's look at this in a couple of different pieces. It is much busier right now. There's no lie to that. There isn't as much time and we're all stretched very thin. So how do we exist in that environment? One of the first things I would say just kind of on a paradigm or mind shift set is expect that this is normal. This is not a crazy time. This is the way it's gonna be. We have to figure out how to exist in that environment in a profitable way. So one of the things in a highly chaotic environment, communication becomes very important. I make sure we talk to everyone all the time. We do stand-ups in the morning. We have staff meetings. I have individual check-ins with people. I'm always talking to them about what's going on and what's happening in the hospital. That communication is really, really important because it's very easy for people in a chaotic environment to hear something over and just not even pay attention to it because they're moving on to the next thing or not about it about at all. And we get so far in our own little world just trying to take care of stuff. We're just not on the same page anymore. We're not operating as a team. We're operating as a bunch of individuals just trying to survive. That also breeds inefficiency greatly. So one of the things you can help out with that is somebody, usually a practice manager is a great person to do it. But that somebody in that practice knows that part of their job is to make sure that things run according to the plan. We have to have a plan. We have to work the plan. And so as things are getting chaotic and blowing up and stuff like that, we need to be able to have somebody who can help manage that to some degree and make sure that we're not just becoming inefficient because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. That person also should be working on moving us forward. And that's where we come into this innovation, inventory, all these other things like that. Looking at moving it forward, when things are really chaotic, you take on less things. Instead of focusing on 10 things at once, you got to learn to say no a lot and focus on the one thing that matters most. Of the 10 things you could focus on today that are project-wise, I'm not talking about the admin work you have to do or the emails you have to send. I'm talking about there should be dedicated time in your mind that you have to be pushing the practice forward and putting the process of the practice, the growth of the practice as the forefront of what you're going to work on there. Because it's very easy in a practice management role to step into roles because they're short staff or to do little small tasks that they have to. Being able to Say no to some of those things and understand what's above the line and what's below the line. That's a concept I talk about with all my staff. There are things that we have to do that are above the line and there's things that we can let slide that are below the line. If I don't give direction as to what's on what side of that line, you're going to arbitrarily pick things based on what you're feeling at that moment. I prefer you to know if you're going to have anything slip. These are the four or five things we can have slip for two days. We'll come back around to them. You just got to let me know that they're slipping, but these are the five things that don't slip. We're always on top of always going to be doing. And so I like to give some of that direction to staff. Just make sure that they understand if you do nothing else in your job, these are the things I need to make sure that you do correctly every time. If you're going to have to say no to something because you're just getting killed today, here are the two things you can say no to. You just got to let me know you said no. Giving someone the ability to prioritize. Even general direction like that really helps people be able to focus on what they need to instead of reacting to the last person that yelled at them or the last problem they ran into or just the last phone call they got. I don't want to put out fires. I want to intentionally move things forward. I think that some of those rules like that help out on the staff side. Communication all the time. Know who's drowning, who's falling behind, figure out what's going on with that. That way you can make tweaks and move things around because the more you can kind of keep people's head above water, the more they actually have time for some of this other stuff. Now, Again, as the kind of chief innovation officer or practice manager or the person who's responsible for making this stuff go forward, I got to be taking on that one project that moves us forward the most. If we're going to talk about anything, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about it multiple times. If we're doing a new inventory system, I'm just going to do that. We're going to put it in place. I'm going to monitor it every day. I'm going to talk to you. How's it going? What's going on with it? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? I know I'll even sit there if you need to take five phone calls in between answering me. I want to get that feedback, and that's going to be resonant in our minds for days on end. Before I move on to anything else, we're going to make sure that that gets into place and becomes one of those big habits We have to form the habit before we move on. Otherwise, everything we do is just spending four hours to implement it just to have it fall away in three days. Stay with one thing through, not only launching it and implementing it, but making sure it's sticking a week or two weeks afterward. And then you can kind of take those training wheels off and let it run on its own. One of the biggest things you can do to focus on first is anything with efficiency, because that's our biggest need right now is time. So looking at that room flow, even if you can only spend half a day and monitor the room flow, find out where those efficiencies are at. That will give you more time to do other things later. I used to have a rule in one of my old companies that I would never ask any of our staff to do something that wasn't easier than what they were doing before. It's a huge high bar, but it was always the concept of how can we do this in a way that doesn't just add more work to people's plates? What can I stop doing? I and mean, what's the report they've been running for the last four years that no one looks at? Let's take that off the plate and discontinue it. What are those things I can stop them from doing that they don't need to do anymore? What are the things that I can tweak that they can only give me a small piece of it that's important and I don't worry about anything else? How can I take work off of their plate? And if one of the focal points I'm always trying to do is either how do I implement processes that are easier for them or how do I take work off their plate? That's a great place to start if you don't have nowhere to begin with stuff. Cut down on people's meaningless work. Figure out what that top 20% is that they do that is critical to your entire environment and your patient care and everything else like that and focus on that. And find out what that bottom 30% is that no one cares about. And if they stop doing it, you wouldn't even realize it for six months and tell them to officially stop doing it, period. Because even if they're not actively working on it, it's in the back of their minds. They're worried about the fact they're behind on it. Just start taking things off their plate and start getting them really laser focused on the things that they have to do well.
1: So, yeah. I love that. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. There's more there that you want to go
2: with. No, no, no. That's good. I could talk for an hour with this stuff. I should probably stop. Yeah.
1: No, there's one rule that Isaiah has in... Interviews with Jason is ask the question and shut up and let Jason talk. <laughs> That's what makes for the great episode. So, man, there was so many different topics I wanted to get to. I'm going to get to one more, and then okay. again, it'll be no surprise that I'll reach out again and be like, "Hey, we need to talk again because I want to talk about the other one." But you talked about recruiting and, re- and retaining talent, and obviously that is top of mind every conversation. Always, always, always can't find people, can't find people, can't find people, can't find people. I just had Dr. Walker, Apollo Veterinary, down in the Austin area. So episode 127, he mentioned he's a de novo startup, not having issues with recruiting and having people that he's turning away, which is awesome. It was interesting to hear kind of why. And then Reese, episode 103, he's up in British Columbia. His wife is the veterinarian. He's kind of the office manager. Same thing where they're seeing a lot of good proactive demand. So why do some struggle so mightily? And why do some others seem to be like this magnet for talent? And then how do you square those? Or how do you think through ways to improve upon that and what do you see when you're out there working with clinics to attract talent i know some of it is location i know that for a fact but anything else that would be important to unpack there
2: yeah so i'm gonna address it from the standpoint of like a standard practice there's a lot of like you talk about there's some examples of great practices that people are just lined up they have a reputation They can't wait to get in there but most of the practices that are probably listening to this or now that they haven't built that reputation, they don't have all the, the bells and whistles that would get them to that point, probably. So let's talk about what do you do today if you need someone now and you don't have a line of people out the door? Where do you start with that? So one of the first things to start with is a weird one, but one of the first things I always look at is obviously don't lose the good talent you have. And so when you look at the people you have, I always encourage you, you should be able to answer off the top of your head if I asked you, who's the most likely person on your team to quit? Always know the answer to that because if you don't know the answer to that, you don't have a good sense of where your team's at and you don't know where your exposure's at. So with all of us trying to get people in and out the day, you can't lose touch with the people that you have there and you can't burn them out to the point that they're going to leave because that just compounds the issue overall. So one of the things that I do during the day and every day when I work with the staff, we make sure we build a great culture. Because one of the things I guarantee that we're going to do is I'm going to compete, and I'll tell you this in the ad in a minute. I'm going to compete against culture. I'm going to beat every clinic next to me on the one thing that most people care about, which is burnout and culture. I'm going to advertise that. I don't even care what the pay is. I don't care what the job duties are. I can advertise on just that alone and I can get people to apply to me. So let's look at how that puts together. I had different little rules in my practice. Like if anyone asked for a vacation, it was automatically approved every time period. Never said no. You wanted a day off, you got it. There's no penalties for it. There was no bad things to it. If you needed it, you got it. If the staff was running hot, and really falling behind. I would go grab them lunch or give him a treat or stuff like that. We had positivity stuff where we were writing each other notes on an ongoing basis, thanking each other back and forth. This happened at the staff level, not just from managers down, but in between each other about what they appreciated and thank you for helping out here and there. We did things like that that just kind of built that culture, that we're all a family, we're all in it together, and we care about burnout. If you said you needed to go somewhere, everyone on the team had a mentality that we would all work harder so you could go leave for two hours to take care of something you needed to take care of. So everyone knew that they had that on the team and everyone would pitch in to give that to the team. So we built a culture that that was okay. So coming to the actual ad piece of it, I'll tell you exactly how I do the hiring. First of all, I'm going to tag into the two things I hear all the time. I'm burned out, it's too busy, and I work on a toxic team with people that are always at each other's throats and stuff like that. So when I write an ad and I post on Indeed, I don't do ZipRecruiter or any of the others personally. If I'm going to write an ad, it's on Indeed, and it's going to be no bullet points. It's about two to three paragraphs long. And the first paragraph is strictly about culture. And so a great example of it is, I want to let you know that here at the Captain's Vet Clinic, we have been fortunate enough to build an amazing team of people here. We're looking for more amazing people. And so we have a culture where we all help each other. We live as a family. We work as a family. And we support each other as a family. If we need time off, we cover each other. If someone has a sick kid, we cover them because we know that life is more than just the work that you have to do, and we believe that we are all in it together. Luckily, we're in a position that we can do that. We've built that over the years, and we're looking for more people who understand that it's not just about getting the work done. It's about being part of a team and helping each other out. We're looking for an assistant. That assistant's role is going to include a couple of different things here and there. And again, no bullet points, but that first paragraph is going to talk about key issues that people have and how we've solved them, where you talk about the fact that I had one ad that opened up and said, uh, we had... um." One of our receptionists in the last week, true ad, I said, one of our receptionists the last week saw somebody standing outside because it was curbside still and brought him a chair to sit outside and sit on so they can be more comfortable. If you're that type of person, we want to talk to you. Just different things like that. All I talk about is people and relationships and personality because I want people to connect with the fact that you're going to go into a place that actually cares about you. It's not just a bumper sticker. It's the true way we act. And so that's going to be the opening thing of the ad and I get people to apply to that from all over the place it seems like they seem interested in that they go yeah i don't like working here they don't appreciate me anymore i'm under trained understaffed i'm under supported i get yelled at all the time if i'm gonna make an ad i'm gonna make an ad that says we do the exact opposite of that but obviously going back to the first point it has to be true we have to build that actual environment i don't ever fake things i don't make it up we actually build the environment where people want to work for most of us if we're owners this is our place but yeah, I want to build a place I want to come to work with every day. That we're going to back each other up, and we're going to be a part of that family, and we're going to enjoy hanging out together, doing lunches together, and we're going to have little things where we're saying thank you, and we're doing Christmas stockings or whatever else we're doing, not because it's part of a quote-unquote fun agenda, but it's because that's who we are. I hire the people who believe in those things and are part of that, and I think that permeates down to our customer service and the front desk. It permeates down to how we interact with our clients in the room, how we deal with people as well. So the first paragraph is about that. Second one is just an assistant. The skill stuff I don't ever need to really talk about in there. You know what an assistant is. You know what a technician is. You know what a receptionist is. I don't need to go into a lot of this stuff there. If there's any nuances they need to know, I put it in there. But again, that's a paragraph that probably has three to four sentences in it. And then we wrap around with some other benefits or some other cool things that we do. But again, this is about selling a practice. It's not about listing a job description, in my opinion. Everyone else is going to list the job description. Out of the hundred ads that a technician is going to look at, I want them to remember mine, even if they don't apply to it. And so that's where your personality has to be first and foremost. You have to show who you are, not what the job is. Because I can say I'm hiring a technician and everyone knows what I'm talking about, but they don't know why should I work at you versus the next 16 ads I'm going to thumb through on my phone on a Friday night. You have one paragraph, and that's why it's always my first one, to capture that and show them that you're different, you're special, and you're where they belong. Outside of that, I'll tell you some other things. I redo my ads every four weeks. That opening paragraph changes. We focus on culture one time, we focus on burnout one time, we focus on training. Training is a great thing. You know, you get to use your skills here. One of the things we do, our people are trained to the max and they get to use all their skills. We don't have anyone that's underutilized. And we encourage people to go back to school get more and stuff like that. And that's in one of our ads. And again, if I have 12 ads written, I can refresh it every month for 12 months. And that will kick me to the top of the Indeed list. It gives another fresh perspective. So the people who said, yeah, I like culture, but I have a good culture. What I really need is training. I might catch them on the first ad, but I'm going to catch them on the second. Other really important things, if you get a hit, get a hold of them that day. I've seen so many practices lose good people because they just don't get back to them. Come to the other strategies, kind of wrap around in this. I'll do this really quickly because I know we're probably running out of time. Yeah, the personality ad. I'm a sponsor for what was $50 on Indeed. I only sponsored for 50 bucks. Now it just got up to 150. So I'm looking that through by sponsor for the absolute minimum for that. In order to get that done, I don't see any benefit for sponsoring more. I didn't get any more help from doing that. So I keep that at the minimum. Anyone that gets a hold of me, we move through that process quickly. I do a phone screen. That phone screen is 15 minutes or less. It is strictly about uh, their personality and their background, educationally and professionally. I want to know where they've been, what they've done they are and where they're going and i have questions that will give me that and probably about 10 questions worth of time if they're a technician i'll ask them probably 15 areas for them to rate themselves just so i understand where they view their technical skills are at but that's a quick one to ten scale one to ten one being you've never done before a 10 being you can come train us how to do it i'll go to your iv catheter placement blood draws uh, dentistry slides surgery intubation here's 15 areas break yourself so i give an idea of where you think you're at from there again this is going to be quickly moving forward you apply to me at 10 a.m. You have an email from me at noon saying what time works for you. I'm sitting down with you within the next two days to do this phone screen. From that phone screen, I am directly scheduling the job shadow with you. And so most of the time, i can get in people from application to job shadow in the same week. It's got to move that quickly because, again, there's 20 other offers and they're probably already job shadowing in three or four other places. I need to get them in front of me because if they walk into my clinic, they're going to want to work for me because of the first thing we talked about. I have a great clinic. And so my goal is to make sure they're qualified enough to spend my team's time on them, They get them in there. I job shadow for two hours. I don't need any more than that because every step I do, it should be eliminating people. If I don't eliminate anyone from that step, I shouldn't be doing it. If I can figure out something in two hours, why should I have them there for six? I can figure it out quickly. I can make decisions. If they're great, I'll make the offer the same day before they leave. If not, I'm making the offer by the end of the day. If I like them, if I need to like go back around and check with the staff and do the job shadow and make sure of a thing or two first. But that offer comes at the end of that job shadow day if I want them if I don't they won't hear from me on that day but that speaks to the need to move quickly with that because it is such candidates market right now you have to be you have to stand out you have to be good you have to move quickly and you have to make a compelling offer and usually for the salary I ask everyone up front in that job and the um not the job child in the phone screen what their salary requirements are and I never argue with them I'm either willing to pay it or I'm not that makes it simple I don't like bringing people in and trying to Get them up to certain levels over time, whatever else like that. If you think you're worth 20 bucks an hour, either I agree with you or you don't. I don't want you to be bitter because I asked you to come in at 19, and I'm not going to haggle with you. Either we agree or we don't. There's a couple of things. We could obviously talk about that more, but there's a short version of it.
1: I appreciate that. And I don't think we've had that conversation around kind of recruiting and interviewing on the show before. And I am the one that has to run. So thank you for the time. We'll do it again because there's some things that I still want to get into. But for those that are listening, thinking, shoot, Jason, I want to connect. I want to talk to you a little bit more about what you offer. Where would you send them? Talk a little bit about what you do and what that looks like.
2: Sure. So I, I do the consultants I have for companion ammo practices across the U.S. So anywhere in the U.S. works for me. If you want to get a hold of me, my direct phone number is 616-437-9764. I love to talk to new people, so feel free to give me a call. If you look for a website, it's C is in Coppins, B is in business, and then a hyphen strategies.com. So CB-strategies.com, that takes you to my website. You'll see me on there and Shannon who works with me. And you can email me at Jason at CB-strategies.com if you want as well. Anyway, you want to get a hold of me, if you want to chat about stuff, feel free to. Perfect. And I'll
1: link to all that in the show notes. Thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you as always. And I know this one will be well-received as well. So thank you, Jason.
2: Cool. Thank you very much for having me on, Isaiah.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should now be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice.